If you were here with us last week, you know that I didn't quite make it all the way through what I intended. And so we're going to uh, finish up with that this morning and continue right on in the text. So that's a good part about just flowing through the text together. It doesn't even throw us off course. We just keep right on going. So we, uh, we kind of began this back in verse 6. So here's kind of an outline of where we've come from. Uh, we asked a question starting in uh, chapter 44, verse 6. Who is like our God? And this is being asked of the text. Who is like him? And he says, there is, there is no God like me. Who is like me? Look at verse 7. Who is like me? There is none like him. Now we have to remember that. He alone is eternal. He alone is omniscient. There's no one else like that. And he alone is sovereign. Again, there is no one else like that. There is no one else who is eternal, omniscient, omniscient and sovereign. He alone is God. Who's like him? Nobody. There's no one. Okay, so that's a good question to ask. Now, who, who is our God? Is our God the one who is eternal, omniscient, and sovereign? That's the question. Now, when it's compared to Israel, what's brought up is all the idols that they've created in place of the eternal, sovereign, omniscient God. And so we ask, what does he look like? What does your God look like? What did their God look like? We ask the question, what does he do? And where did he come from? And we understand that our God is a particular God, and he is very, very much unlike the created idols. And that's what the text has told us so far, right? And then we're going to ask uh, the final question in this text, beginning in verse 9, if you'll look at it with me. Who is God? Who is God? So what do we do with this information? We're to do three things. We are to remember, we'll see in verse 21, we are to return, verse 22, and we are to rejoice, verse 23. So just uh, look at it with me, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Did you see all three things in there? Look at back at verse 21 with me. Remember these things, O Jacob. Remember. Remember who God is. Remember who your God is. Remember that your God, because wasn't this the issue for Israel? They have forgotten him. And when we forget who God is and what he's like, then we are tempted to replace him with a poor substitute, right? When you forget that your God is the eternal God, the sovereign God, the omniscient God, and there is none like him, who wants to replace that God? I don't. But it's when we forget our God that we tend to want to substitute him for something else entirely. And so, Remember who your God is. And then verse 22, what does it say? I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. And so what should you do? Return to me. So we remember who our God is. And then upon our remembering of who he is, what do you do? You return to him. There is a turning. Turn to him. Why? For I have redeemed you. Actually, the Greek of, of, of this, the, the Greek translation in, in this is actually return to me and I will redeem you. So it's actually a little different. It's interesting. I have redeemed you or I will redeem you, but both are true. 
actually. Uh, I have redeemed you, return to me. I will redeem you, turn to me. So for all who turn to God, there is redemption. Do you see the hope in it, actually? For all who turn to God, there is redemption to be found. And how can that be? Because when you turn to the true God, he can redeem you because he alone is eternal, omniscient, and sovereign. And only that God can redeem you, right? It all makes sense, doesn't it? It's so plain to us. And then just look at the third thing, verse 23. So once you have turned, what do you do now? You remember who your God is, you, re- you turn to him, and then what do you do? You rejoice. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, and break forth into singing. O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord, the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Now here's the issue we have. Mountains don't sing. Forests don't sing. Trees don't sing. Right? Or am I missing something? These created things don't sing, but what is so interesting, and if you're a note taker, please write down this reference, Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. Why? Because we understand, and Paul helps us to understand, that do you know that even the very creation itself is longing, eagerly longing for the redemption of the children of God. And when the children of God are redeemed, there will be great rejoicing. Even the creation itself is longing for the children of God to be revealed and redeemed. That's an exciting reality. And why is creation itself waiting for that? Because of the one who created it. The eternal, sovereign, omniscient God created these things and they know. And they're waiting, eagerly waiting for our redemption. That's exciting. Okay, so now we're going to come off of that and we're going to go now into verse 24. And we're just going to kind of continue on in our, in our outline. So we've asked the question, who is like our God? Who is our God? Who is God? And we've asked questions. Now let's make some statements of reality, okay? Who is God? He is the Lord. I thought we already established that, but let's just see what the text says, okay? Look at verses 24 and 25. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, and what does it say? I am the Lord, who made all things, all these things that are singing, right? I made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. In other words, I just want you to see that in these two verses, it has yet again been summarized who God is. Do you see it? He is the Lord who made all things. He formed them from the womb. What is this in a reference to? That he is the eternal God and he's before all things. He is before all things and he brought all things into existence. So he's eternal. God has always been. He formed Jacob from the womb, all of Israel, and he brought all of creation into being. There is none before him and there will be none after him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Who's that in reference to? That's in reference to Christ in Colossians 1. And then it says, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth. How? By myself. Who did God need to create all things? Did he need someone's help? Did he need pre-existent matter? 
No, or did he bring all things into existence out of nothing? How? Who helped him? Surely he had help. He said, by myself, I did it. Because he is all powerful. So a reference to his sovereignty yet again. So there is a reference to his eternality. He is eternal. There is a reference to his sovereignty. And wouldn't you know it, there is a reference next to his omniscience. So look at it. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Why? Because they don't actually know the future. Who turns wise men back, makes their knowledge foolish. Why? Because he alone is the omniscient one. He is the only one who has all knowledge. So it has been established again in the text in a long way strung out and then in a short abbreviated way here that our God is the only eternal, omniscient, and sovereign God. Okay? And he is the Lord. Next, what does it say? This is very important, pivotal in our text. So the next statement is this. Now listen to what he has to say. Listen up. God has been establishing himself from our text. Look back at, just look back at verse, uh, or chapter 44, verse 1. Do you see what it says? Chapter 44, verse 1. Hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you, and who will help you. We are coming back to this now from a brief time away of establishment of who God is. We are coming back. So now we are saying God has been established. It has been established that Israel has turned from him and created poor substitutes for the true God. And now he's saying, now that you remember who I am and you've turned and there is a rejoicing. Now, listen up to what I have to say next. Listen to what I have to say. Now, uh, let's see what God has to say. Beginning in verse 26. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers and who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry and I will drive your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Do you see all the things God just said? He said those things as who? Because that's the point. Who has said these things? The true, eternal, omniscient, sovereign God has spoken. Listen to what he just said. So let's just look at the things that were said here. Of Jerusalem and Judah. In verse 26, of Jerusalem and Judah, it says, she shall be inhabited, the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. So now that God has established that he is the only true God, we listen to what he has to say, and what's the first thing he has to say? That Jerusalem shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah shall be built. What's the issue we have right there? The temple is already doing fine. The temple doesn't need to be built. The temple is already built. The city of Judah doesn't need to be established. It already has been. Why are you saying that these things are going to be done if they're already there? We're already living in it. Because he's looking forward to when they will be destroyed and then forward yet again to where they're going to be rebuilt. 
we have to remember what, how would they have heard this? Now, it's already been said in Isaiah that all this stuff is going to be destroyed, right? So they already heard that. But now he's saying, but listen, here's what I have to say about Jerusalem. And here's what I have to say about the cities of Judah is that they're going to be inhabited again. Don't worry. I'm here to help you. That's what he said, 44 verse 1, verse 2. And of the cities of Judah, they will be built and I will raise up the ruins. Put yourself in that context. We are living here. Let's just take the entire U.S. as our city, okay? This is our land, our city. He says, now I'm, I'm sending someone upon you. Your land is going to be devastated. Your capital, all your places of worship, gone, and you are going to be led to captivity somewhere under pagan nation, and you're gonna, a lot of you are going to die, and it's going to be total devastation. It's going to be horrible. But then after all that, you will return to your land and the places of worship will be reestablished and the places will be re-inhabited. Um, how are you feeling about that? How are you feeling about going through all that? And it, for some of them, it's even, uh, by the way, what's the timeline here? Am I going to be able to see it? Will I come back or am I going to be the ones actually that's killed in battle? Slaughtered. I don't know. I don't know what my fate is. Is that important to the text? The individual fate of individual people is like, well, for some of you, rejoice. Uh, for, some, for others of you, don't rejoice because there's bad stuff coming. Or is there actually a call on all of God's people, regardless of what happens, to rejoice and turn to the Lord? Do you see it? So this is what he says to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. What does he say next? He says, to the deep. God talks to the water. There was somebody else who talked to water. God says to the deep, be dry and I'll dry up your rivers. What does this have to do with anything? It's just, you know, FYI, just for your knowledge, that when God talks to water, it will dry up. Anyway, moving on. Is that why it's there? Just to let you know God can dry up water too, also, that God can do that? Why is it, does it have a context? Well, I think there, there, there are at least maybe two ways that we can understand why this might be here first. Is there is always a thematic connection between drying up waters and the redemption of the people from Egypt, right? You remember when the people walked across on dry land, God dried up the water? How? Well, because Moses had a staff and he stretched out his hand. It, was it the power of Moses that made the waters dry up? Who did that? God did that. So it's a reminder that the God who dried up the waters and miraculously redeemed his people is the same God who's saying these things to you now. So remember that when redemption seems impossible, I am the God who does the impossible and dries up the very waters for my people to be redeemed. So do you see that? But there's also another connection. I think that shouldn't be maybe denied. But we're, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about this just here in a moment. But there is another circumstance coming where rivers are dried up. So just keep that in mind. All right? Next. So God talks to, uh, he says of Jerusalem and Judah uh, that they will be re-inhabited and rebuilt. And then he says to the waters uh, that he can dry them up if he wants to. And he's going to. And then he says, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. 
saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So God is saying something of Cyrus. Who is Cyrus? What we have to understand here right away is that the same God who spoke creation into existence is speaking something else right now. And now that we understand who God is, when God speaks, is there a possibility that it will not come to pass? God has, he has, if you don't understand that by now, there is a real problem. If you don't understand that when God speaks, something happens and no one's going to get in his way, then it hasn't gotten through yet. When God speaks, something happens. And so this is what we see happening in our text. So in the same way that God spoke then, he speaks now. And God has made this man, Cyrus, his servant, to fulfill all his purposes. All his purposes. He calls Cyrus his shepherd, one whom God will use to lead and guide his people. Isn't that what a shepherd does? A lead and guide and supply. So this man's shepherd is going to lead, guide, and supply God's people. But who is Cyrus? Is it important for us to know who he is? There is a reference here, and I don't want to go into too much detail because I want to stay just uh, on the big picture of what's happening here, but there is a lot of detail here. So again, I will, I will reference you back over to Jeremiah 25. Uh, Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 13. Uh, it, it goes into kind of more of a detailed account of what God is saying here. And in that, we find that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is also called God's servant. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, just like Cyrus is my servant. It says of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, that he is going to devote them to destruction. And it, then it says here that Cyrus is going to be used by God. And so I, I want to just summarize what's happening here rather than going into uh, too much detail. This is what's happening. That God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish Israel, right? That's how destruction comes on Jerusalem and the temple. But then God, in turn, is going to use Cyrus to punish Babylon. Those exact words are found there in the Jeremiah reference, if you want to look at it. So God is going to use this man Cyrus to punish Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was God's servant. There's some very interesting things here if you're following this. If Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant, he is doing the bidding of who? God. And then he's going to be punished for it. Because the exact same thing happened back in Isaiah chapter 10 with the Assyrians. That the Assyrians were also serving God. And then once they did what God intended for them to do, he punished them with the Babylonians. We see this happening over and over. But let's get to the detailed account of Cyrus. So that happens in chapter 45. So here's this guy, Cyrus. God is going to use him. He is his shepherd. He's going to fulfill all his purpose with him. By the way, let me just interject here. I am not oblivious to the fact that I have just given you lots of information. Information is important because information creates context and context creates meaning and meaning is important, correct? Information is good 
if this information were not profitable, where would it not be found in the Bible? This information is here, yes. This is God's word, yes. Every bit of it inspired by God, yes. Every bit of it, the very word of God, yes. Including this detailed account of what's happening in history? Yes. And is it profitable for us? Well, the Bible also says that it is. So I just want to remind you of that as we're working through this. Okay? Don't be discouraged. Also, don't go to sleep. <laughs> we're getting to a big point here, but you know what gets us there? Context. I want to take you there. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. So now Cyrus is not only the shepherd of God, he is also his anointed. The word there is Mashiach, right? What does that sound like? Messiah, because that is what it is. It could be translated if we wanted. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, Cyrus. And it's even translated in the Greek version, Christos, which means Christ. Thus says the Lord to his Christ, to his Messiah, meaning his anointed one. Cyrus. Who is anointed in the Old Testament? Primarily, prophets, priests, and kings are anointed. And the word anoint here just means, it means, well, to smear is its base, to smear with oil, to be anointed, to be anointed, to be given direction by God, to be used by him for a particular purpose. So there is something very special about this guy Cyrus, right? He is anointed by God to do something. This guy must be very important. We're about to learn a little bit more about him as we look in the text. We didn't get very far, did we? Let's go back up to 45 verse one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. That's, that's actually kind of historically significant. You ever seen old statues and things like that? You ever noticed some old statues, the right hand is up like this? You know, it's called the smiting position, right? Where they have a, a, something in their right hand. And what this means in statues is that they have dominated everything in their path, or at least they intend to. So when God has grasped that right hand, whatever he subdues, who's actually doing it? God. To subdue what? Nations before him. To loose the belts of kings. To open doors and gates that might not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you, who's the I by the way, just keep that in mind. This is God. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. That's what God just said to Cyrus, though he does not know him. And why has he said it? For the sake of his people, he has said it and he has done it. I want to give you just a, uh, an abbreviated timeline of events. 
And uh, so just remember, this is really, really important to the why this is so impactful here is that when is the book of Isaiah written? Well, the career of Isaiah is between 742 and 701. And then Babylon becomes a great world power in 612 to 605. And then the temple's destroyed 586. Okay? So, here's what's interesting. Cyrus, who is king of uh, a Persian nation, Medes and Persians. The Medo- Medo-Persian Empire is what he will rule over. But it is in 539 that Cyrus takes over Babylon. What year are we in right now? When was this written? About 700, 701. Cyrus has not even been thought of yet. See how far away we are from this happening? There's no way he was alive yet. Which is why some people will look at the Bible and say, what? There is no way. There is no way that was written by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived too far ago. So what happened really is they were led into captivity and they found out the guy's name and then they went back later and they edited the text to put his name in to seem like God was something greater than what he actually is. And a lot of people subscribe to that today, actually. There's a first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah. The other's not actually named Isaiah, but pretending to be Isaiah. But here's what makes this so important. God names him and creates him for a particular purpose before he's even thought of, and he tells his people his name. I name you because he hasn't even been born yet. God names him. Now, was this guy a real historical figure? Can we look back and find him anywhere? Is there any remains, any, any accounts, anything written? Is there anything that says that there is actually a guy named Cyrus and that the prophecy here turned true and that God actually is who he says he is and he can do what he says? And when God speaks, there's no one who can turn his hand away. Is there any account that says that this guy was real and he really did this? The answer? Yes. Uh, there's... A lot of information, actually. Uh, I just want to share with you just one piece. And there it is. Okay? This is the Cyrus Cylinder. And uh, this is from about 539 B.C. There was a big event in 539 B.C., of course. That's when they took over the Babylonian Empire, and this was found in Babylon. And... uh, so uh, this, this is currently in the uh, British Museum, and there's uh, quite a bit of text on there, and what's there has been um, uh, translated. And uh, I think you'll find it interesting to hear a couple of words here. So here's from line 12 of the Cyrus Cylinder. He searched everywhere, and then he took a righteous king, his favorite king, by the hand, and he called out his name, Cyrus. He pronounced his name to be king over all the world. That would be really, really good if he was talking about the god uh, Yahweh. He's talking about Marduk, the uh, Babylonian god. So in, in, 
in, uh, in Cyrus's mind, who was a true historical king. We don't need history to tell us that. The Bible tells us that. But it is further shown to us, this guy was real. He really did lay waste to the known world. And he really did come upon the most powerful nation at that time. And because God Almighty had grasped his hand to subdue nations before him, he was successful. If God Almighty had not grasped his hand to be successful, he would not have been successful. He was a pagan king. He did not know the Lord. They were wicked and they will one day be punished. But yet they are doing the will of God. All the while, God's will is being done. I just want you to see that. Uh, I, I have one more line here I want you to, I want you to hear. He made him enter his city Babylon, this is from the Cyrus Cylinder, without fighting or battle. He saved Babylon from hardship. He delivered Nabonidus, the king who did not revere him, into his hands. I returned the images of the gods who had resided there to their places and I let them dwell in their eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned them to their dwellings. In addition, at the command of Marduk, the great lord, I settled in their inhabitants uh, the gods of Sumer, Akkad, Nabonidus, to the anger of the lords, and I brought them into Babylon. So what's being said here is that uh, Cyrus looked at Babylon and he said, the Babylonian uh, regime has taken all these people from all these different lands and they've taken them away from their homeland. They've made them worship something that is not God. I don't like that. I'm going to send everybody back home, back to their lands where they can worship their gods. Who did Cyrus do that to? To the people. And then there is a command out of the mouth of Cyrus himself, go and rebuild your temple. Go and re-inhabit your cities. Go. And so God is using him. By the way, this empire that Cyrus rules over, it becomes the greatest known world power of all time. I mean, up until that day, the greatest known world power. How? God made it so. God made it so. This is all going somewhere. Please go there with me. Now, his kingdom would last until somewhere around 300 when Alexander the Great took over. We know Alexander the Great. He's what made the Greek language uh, come to the known world and he... Uh, this is the, the Greek uh, part of the world and then turns Roman and then we get into our New Testament. So there's not other two, very many uh, great world powers after this uh, that we know of that, that pertains to biblical history here. So let's get to where I wanted to get to. How long did it take me to get there? All right, chapter 45, verse seven. This is where we've been getting to, okay? This is good, this is good, you ready? Been excited to get here. All right, it says, look at it, verse seven. This is God speaking. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. All these things. 
Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up, that salvation and righteousness might bear fruit. Let them cause them to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. But woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Let's see what's being said here. That is the end of our text for uh, this morning. No, it's not. We're almost there. Here's what's being said. God is doing all these things. God creates light and he creates darkness. Let there be uh, no question about that. But what does light and darkness reference here? Well-being and calamity. This is a parallelism. Well-being is associated with light. Calamity is associated with darkness. Do you know what that word calamity actually is most commonly translated? Evil. But now we don't ever give God credit for evil because there is no evil in him. But when calamity does arise, where has it come from? It has come from God himself. Such as what? Such as a pagan king subduing nations before him. How did that happen? How could they ever come to this? I am the one who does all these things. That salvation and righteousness might bear fruit. What is his end goal? Salvation and righteousness. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Who formed you? God. Who formed all things and all people and all nations? God. Woe to him who forms him, who, who goes against who formed him and says this. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. You made a pot and it doesn't have handles. You really messed up. Or you're making something and you look at it and you say, you can say it to me, okay? You maybe said it with this sermon. You created something here. What are you making there? Where are you going with this? Where you look around and you see something I've made and I'm working on it here and you say, listen, what are you making there? I don't know. I don't know that that's very good, actually. But woe to him who says to him who created him, what are you making? In other words, Open your eyes and look around. Every one of us knows that there is this thing in the air. And what is that? Things are going crazy in our world. I don't know that there's one of you who hasn't said something similar to me. The world is crazy. The world is going downhill quick. It's a slippery slope. What are we going to do? What are we, what, uh, how, we, you know, how are we going to make sense of all this? It, the only things that happen in this world, including nations rising up against nations and one kingdom dominating another, do you know that none of this happens apart from the Lord? Do you know that none of it happens apart from the Lord? And should he say no, it won't happen? And should he say yes, you better believe it's going to happen? So do you realize that if all things go crazy tomorrow or this afternoon, you can't even imagine what 
living in a nation and all of a sudden another power rises up that's more powerful than us and they come and they subdue us, they lead us away from our homes, you have nothing and people you know have been killed, where has God gone? What are we going to do now? We, that is saying to him, what are you making? You're questioning the sovereign Lord of history. Do we forget that he is the sovereign Lord of history? That he is the eternal, omniscient, sovereign God and all things are bowing down to him, including this? He has done all things and he will do all things. He has done all things for the sake of righteousness and salvation. Righteousness and salvation. Now, this is not only grand scale. Don't you know that this is also personal to you? What has happened in your life that you think, yeah, it wasn't, you know, like a nation rising up against a nation and we were, uh, you know, there was warfare and all this kind of stuff. Most of us, we don't know anything about that, do we? But we do know about tragic events happening in our life, don't we? And our little kingdom has come crashing down. And we say to God, what are you making? What are you doing with my life? You made this, it has no handles. You made this life and it doesn't even work right. What are you doing? Woe to him who says, what are you making? So what are we supposed to do? What is the answer? There is always only one answer and I have tried, oh, I have tried. I have tried to make this a point so often. You're probably sick of hearing it. There is only one thing that we are called to every single day, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your eschatological position and what may be. It doesn't matter. You're called to the same thing. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow or 10 years or 100 years. It doesn't change what you are called to. It doesn't change anything. You are always called to faith, repentance, and obedience. That's it. That is what you are called to regardless of circumstance. Always, 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 God is looking for you to be faithful to him, to repent of your sins, and to be obedient. Always. In fact, he is working all things for righteousness' sake. He is working all things for righteousness' sake. And I want to get to that. Um... Let's just finish out our text here. There's too much here, Sherry. There's too much. You know, maybe this is why. Maybe this is why we had to take a break from Isaiah. I got too worked up about it. <laughs> is that what happened? Maybe. I don't know. It's just, it's too good. There is so much here about who God is. And here's what's so great about it. It's so contrary to what is popularly about God. It is so contrary, but it is so true, and it is obvious, and it is in your face, isn't it? Isn't it so plain from the text today? Who God is, and what he does, and there is none against him, and listen, no matter what happens here, it is God. Don't you see it? It is him, so therefore trust. Regardless of what's going on, trust. All right, I better read it. So, Verses, verses 11 through 13. 
Thus says the Lord. So here's the last thing he has to say. The Holy One of Israel, to the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Ask who of things to come? Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? What is God saying right there? Will you command me about my children and the work of my hands? Are you trying to tell me that I'm not doing it right? Because you just said, what are you making? Your work has no handles. You're not doing it right. You're not being a good father. A good father doesn't do that. A good father doesn't send a pagan nation to kill his children. No, and right? I, we get that. But listen, who are you to speak to God? The eternal, omniscient, sovereign God of history. Who are you to speak to him and say, you're not doing it right? Look around you, just scroll through your headlines, which I know you do anyway, and just say, God is sovereign over this too. Okay? Scroll through the headlines of your life and say, God is sovereign over this too. He has not left anything alone. Nothing, nothing is happening by chance. That is calming to your heart, right? Nothing, not a single breath you take is out of place. This is good news. Did I finish the text? I made the earth, I created it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, back to Cyrus. I will make his ways level. He shall build my city, set my exiles free, but not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. He said it, what's gonna happen? It's gonna happen. I want to end our time of thinking about this over in Romans 8. I just, I, I want to make proper application to uh, a text that sometimes is misunderstood. So go to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. Are you excited already, Sherry? Yeah, okay. I'm excited too. So in the midst of well-being, in the midst of calamity, who created all these things? Who does all these things? Well-being and calamity, light and darkness, who does it? The Lord God, he creates all, he does all these things, okay? Now, is he ever blamed for evil? No. Anybody remember the whole coconut oil situation? Oh, we don't have time this morning for the coconut oil, but left alone, it's in what condition? Hard. But touch it and it melts, Okay? When God takes his hand off the heart, what happens? It's hard. But God actively takes his hand off to create hard hearts. But God actively touches them to create soft hearts. Okay? So is he blamed for their hard-heartedness? No, he simply removed his hand and the heart went to its natural condition. Okay? It's all about coconut oil. I mean, unless you're, you know, in somewhere hot and then it's always, well, anyway, yeah. It doesn't always work, but just, anyway. Romans 8, 28, are you there? It says, and we know that for those who love God, who is this qualified for, first of all? 
for those who love God, all things work together for good, that is righteousness sake. Isn't that what was just said back in Isaiah? For those who are called according to his purpose, and there's yet another qualification. Just to be sure we all understand who we're talking about here. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all of these things are working together for good, for righteousness sake. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. The good thing, listen, the good thing. Some people say, I don't know, I'm trying to find the good in this situation. A lot of people say that to me. I know there's a lot of bad stuff going on right now, but they're coming to just, I don't know, get the ear of the pastor and just, I don't know what it is. But, you know, you come and you tell me I got a lot of stuff going on and I'm just trying to find the good, trying to find the good. I want to tell you what the good is. It's always the same thing. The good out of your calamity is always being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the good. It's not, I'm just waiting for, I know I lost my job, but I'm just waiting for that better one that God's got in store for me. You know? Someone robbed me of all my money, you know? But I'm just waiting for that storehouse to open up and God's gonna give me it back tenfold. You know? I just, that's wrong. That is wrong. You weren't promised that. But what you were promised and what God is doing for you is conforming you to the image of his son. He is using all of these things, light and dark and well-being and calamity. He is doing all of this to conform you to the image of his son. That is what this text means. All things work together for good for those who love God. What kind of good? The good of your sanctification. The good of you taking this situation and being conformed to Christ. And that is why I have said, and I believe firmly because the Lord has done this with me, When he takes you to the pits, it is the grace of God on your life because he has something good in store for you that you are about to see the glory of God and be changed forever. Because when you are taken to the pits, you have nowhere else to go. It is a grace of God that he lets you see and feel and experience calamity that you might turn to him and rejoice in him. It's what he was doing with Israel. It's what he does with all his children because he loves them and he's a good father. And we do not, though, turn and say to him, what are you making? Let's not forget, all of these things are for good. But he calls us to the same thing. Remember who God is. Return to him and rejoice in him. Okay, let's pray.